Hey guys, just so you know, this episode is going to be a clusterfuck of a bunch of edited out and added in uh, segments, so get ready for that. Uh, but here's me beginning the episode letting you know that I am about to do a reading. Yay, it's really good. You should listen to it. However, if you don't want to listen to it, I get it. Um, I do a non-reading involved podcast that I recorded earlier in the day. Um, so if you want to check that out, you can skip towards it in the, uh, podcast, but here's the thing. Here's why I'm recording this part. Uh, in the next segment, I say skip about five to 10 minutes forward. Turns out the recording is 33 minutes long. Go ahead and skip 35 minutes ahead, folks, and you'll get right into the real good of it. Uh, here's the next segment by me. Bye. Hey folks. Uh, it's me, your host, Josh. Uh, one, two... Hop in here real quick in the beginning of this episode, just because I think that uh, my energy has been focused uh, on certain things lately, and this uh, this reading that I just did has a lot in common with kind of how I've been feeling lately. So I am going to read here um, chapter twenty three of a people's history of the United States by Howard Zinn as a little um, momentum booster. Uh, it's titled, The Coming Revolt of the Guards. If, uh, if you don't, don't want to listen to something like this, you could probably skip, a, skip about five to ten minutes in. Uh, it's decently long, but I'm not going to read all of it. Um, so, yeah, there's that. So let's, let's get into that. So, Here's here's where we're starting. So just a little bit of background on what a people's history of the United States is. Um, it is a historical uh, materialist analysis of the history of the United States from some of the earliest settlers, uh, such as the Dutch, um, all the way to, I believe, the last chapter ends with Clinton, the Clinton presidency. Um but so chapter 23 is right towards the end. So we've gone up to this point in the book. We've gone through everything, right? All the way up to the Clinton presidency. So we're late 90s, early 2000s, because it, he doesn't necessarily keep a linear history, but kind of bounces around. So we're late 90s, early 2000s here. We've got We've covered the history of... Vietnam. We've covered the history of the economic collapses. We've covered the history of the different people's struggles all throughout American history, including uh, the women's struggle, African-American struggle, labor struggle, immigrant struggle. Um, he's talked about a lot. So this is kind of his like crescendo here. And I think that, quite honestly, it's very inspirational. Um so here, here he begins, he says, The title of this chapter is not a prediction, but a hope, which I will soon explain. As for the subtitle of this book, it is not quite accurate. A people's history promises more than any one person can fulfill, and it is the most difficult kind of history to recapture. I call it that anyway because with its limitation, limitations, it is a history disrespectful of governments and respectful of people's movements of resistance. That makes it a biased account, one that leans in a certain direction. I'm not troubled by that. Because the mountain of history books under which we all stand leans so heavily in the other direction, so tremendously um, respectful of states and statesmen, and so disrespectful by inattention to people's movements, that we need some counterforce to avoid being crushed into submission. All those histories of this country centered on the founding fathers and the presidents weigh oppressively on the capacity of the ordinary citizen to act. They suggest that in times of crisis we must look to someone to save us. 
In the Revolutionary Crisis, the Founding Fathers. In the Slavery Crisis, Lincoln. In the Depression, Roosevelt. In the Vietnam Watergate Crisis, Carter. And that between occasional crisis, everything that is all right, and it is sufficient for us to be restored to that normal stage. They teach us that the supreme act of citizenship is to choose among saviors by going to a voting booth every four years to choose between two white and well-off Anglo-Saxon males of inoffensive personality and orthodox opinions. The idea of saviors has been built into the entire culture beyond politics. We have learned to look to the stars, leaders, experts in every field, thus surrendering our own strength, demeaning our own ability, obliterating our own selves. But from time to time, Americans reject that ideal and rebel. These rebellions so far have been contained. The American system is the most ingenious system of control in world history. With a country so rich in natural resources, talent, and labor power, the system can afford to distribute just enough wealth to enough people to limit discontent to a troublesome minority. It is a country so powerful, so big, so pleasing to so many of its citizens that it can afford to give freedom of dissent to the small number who are not pleased. There is no system of control with more openings, apertures, leeways, flexibilities, rewards for the chosen, winning tickets, and lotteries. There is none that disperses its controls more complexly through the voting system, the work situation, the church, the family, the school, the mass media. None more successful in mollifying opposition with reforms, isolating people from one another, creating patriotic loyalty. One percent of the nation owns a third of the wealth. The rest of the wealth is distributed in such a way as to turn to those in the 99% against one another. Small property owners against the propertyless, black against white, native-born against foreign-born, intellectuals and professors against the uneducated and unskilled. And excuse me, that was professionals, not professors. Um... Quote, These groups have resented one another and warred against one another with such vehemence and such violence as to obscure their common position as sharers of leftovers in a very wealthy country. Against the reality of that desperate, bitter battle for resources made scarce by elite control, I am taking the liberty of uniting those 99% as the people. I have been writing a history that attempts to re represent their submerged, deflected common interest, to emphasize the commonality of the 99%, to declare deep enmity of interest with the 1%, is to do exactly what the governments of the United States and the wealthy elite allied to, to them from the founding fathers to now have tried their best to prevent. Madison feared a majority faction and hoped the new constitution would control it. He and his colleagues began the preamble to the constitution with the words, We the people, pretending that the new government stood for everyone and hoping that this myth, accepted as fact, would ensure domestic tranquility. The pretense continued over the generations, helped by all-embracing symbols, physical or verbal, such as the flag, patriotism, democracy, national interest, national defense, national security. These slogans were dug into the earth of American culture like a circle covered wagons on sorry, like a circle of covered wagons on the western plain from inside of which the white, slightly privileged American could shoot to kill the enemy outside. Indians or blacks or foreigners or other whites too, wretched to be allowed inside the circle. The managers of the caravan watched at a safe distance, and when the battle was over and the field strewn with dead on both sides, they would take over the land and prepare another expedition for another territory. The scheme never worked perfectly. The revolution and the constitution trying to bring stability by containing the class angers of the colonial period while enslaving blacks, annihilating or displacing Indians, did not quite succeed. Judging by the tenant uprisings, the slave revolts, the abolitionist agitation, the feminist upsurge, the Indian guerrilla warfare of the pre-Civil War years, after the Civil War, a new coalition of southern and northern elites developed. 
with Southern whites and blacks of the lower classes occupied in racial conflict, native workers and immigrant workers clashing in the north, and the farmers dispersed over a big country while the system of capitalism consolidated itself in industry and government. But there came rebellion among indus industrial workers and a great opposition movement among farmers. At the turn of the century, the violent pacification of blacks and Indians and the use of elections and war to absorb and divert white rebels were not enough in the conditions of modern industry to prevent the great upsurge of socialism, the massive labor struggles before the First World War. Neither that war nor the part partial prosperity of the 20s nor the apparent destruction of the socialist movement could prevent in the situation of economic crisis another radical awakening another labor upsurge in the 30s world war ii created a new unity followed by an apparently successful attempt in the atmosphere of the cold war to extinguish the long and strong radical temper of the war years. But then surprisingly came the surge of the 60s from people thought long subdued or put out of sight. Blacks, women, Native Americans, prisoners, soldiers, and a new radicalism which threatened to spread widely in a population disillusioned by v the Vietnam War and the politics of Watergate. The exile of Nixon, the celebration of the bicentennial, the presidency of Carter, all aimed at restoration. But the restoration to the old order was no solution to the uncertainty, the alienation, which was intensified in the Reagan-Bush years. The election of Clinton in 1992, carrying with it a vague promise of change, did not fulfill the expeditions of the hopeful. Expectation, sorry. <clears throat> With such continuing malice, it is very important for the establishment, that uneasy club of business executives, generals, and politicos, to maintain the historic pretension of national unity in which the government represents all the people and the common enemy is overseas, not at home, where disasters of economics or war are unfortunate errors or tragic accidents to be corrected by the members of the same club that brought the disasters. It is important for them also to make sure this artificial unity of highly privileged and slightly privileged is the only unity that the 99% remain split in countless ways and turn against one another to vent their angers. How skillful to tax the middle class to pay for the relief of the poor, building resentment on top of humiliation. How adroit to bust poor black youngsters into poor white neighborhoods in a violent exchange of impoverished schools while the schools of the rich remain untouched and the wealth of the nation doled out carefully where children need free milk is drained for billion-dollar aircraft carriers. How ingenious to meet the demands of blacks and women for equality by giving them small special benefits and setting them in competition with everyone else for jobs made scarce by an irrational, wasteful system. How wise to turn the fear of anger of the majority toward a class of criminals bred by economic inequity faster than they can be put away, deflecting attention from the huge thefts of national resources carried out within the law by men in executive offices. But with all the controls of power and punishment, enticements and concessions, diversions and decoys operating throughout the history of the country, the establishment has been made unable to keep itself secure from revolt. Every time it looked as if it had succeeded, the very people it thought it subduced or subdued stirred and rose. Blacks, cajoled by the Supreme Court decisions and congressional statutes, rebelled. Women, wooed and ignored, romanticized and mistreated, rebelled. Indians, thought dead, reappeared, defiant. Young people, despite lures of career and comfort, defected. Working people, thought soothed by reforms, regulated by law, kept within bounds by their own unions, went on strike. Government intellectuals pledged to secrecy began giving away secrets. Priests turned from piety to protest. To recall this is to remind people of what the establishment would like them to forget. The enormous capacity of apparently helpless people to resist, of apparently count, count, contented people to demand change. 
To uncover such history is to find a powerful human impulse to assert one's humanity. It is to hold out, even in times of deep pessimism, the possibility of surprise. True, to overestimate class conscious, to exaggerate rebellion and its successes, would be misleading. It would not account for the fact that the world, not just the United States, but everywhere else, is still in the hands of the elites, that people's movements, although they show an infinite capacity for reoccurrence, have so far been either defeated or absorbed or perverted, that socialist revolutionists have betrayed socialism, that nationalist revolutions have led to new dictatorships. But most histories understate revolt, overemphasize statementship, and thus encourage impotency among citizens. When we look closely at resistance movements or even at isolated forms of rebellion, we discover that class consciousness or any other awareness of injustice has multiple levels. It has many ways of expression, many ways of revealing itself, open, subtle, direct, distorted. In a system of intimidation and control, people do not show how much they know, how deeply they feel, until their practical sense informs them they can do so without being destroyed. History, which keeps alive the memory of people's resistance, suggests new definitions of power. By traditional definitions, whoever possesses military strength, wealth, command of official ideology, cultural control, has power. Measured by these standards, popular rebellion never looks strong enough to survive. However, the unexpected victories, even temporary ones, of insurgents show the vulnerability of the supposedly powerful. In a highly developed society, the, established cannot, the establishment cannot survive without the obedience and loyalty of millions of people who are given small rewards to keep the system going. The soldiers and the police, teachers and ministers, administrators and social workers, technicians and production workers, doctors, lawyers, nurses, transport and communications workers, garbagemen and firemen. These people, the employed the somewhat privileged, are drawn into alliance with the elite. They become the guards of the system, buffers between the upper and lower classes. If they stop obeying, the system falls. That will happen, I think, only when all of us who are slightly privileged and slightly uneasy begin to see that we are like the guards in the prison uprising at Attica, expendable, that the establishment of whatever... Whatever rewards it gives us will also, if necessary to maintain its control, kill us. Certain new facts may, in our time, emerge so clearly as to lead us to general withdrawal of loyalty from the system. These new conditions of technology, economics, and war in the atomic age make it less and less possible for the guards of the system, the intellectuals, the homeowners, the taxpayers, the skilled workers, the professionals, the servants of government, to remain immune from the violence, physical and psychological, inflicted on the black, the poor, the criminal, the enemy overseas. The internalization of the economy Internationalization of the economy, the movement of refugees and illegal immigrants across borders, both make it more difficult for the people of the industrial countries to be oblivious to hunger and disease in the poor countries in the world. All of us have become hostages in the new conditions of doomsday technology, runaway economics, global poisoning, uncontrollable war. The the atomic weapons, the invisible radiations, the economic anarchy do not distinguish prisoners from guards, and those in charge will not be scrupulous in making distinctions. There is the unforgettable response of the U.S. High Command to the news that the American prisoners of war might be near Nagasaki. They said, targets previ previously assigned for center board remain unchanged. There is evidence of growing dissatisfaction among the guards. We have known for some time that the poor and ignored were the non-voters, alienated from a political system they felt didn't care about them and about which they could do little. Now alienation has spread upward into families above the poverty line. 
These are white workers, neither rich nor poor, but angry over economic insecurity, unhappy with their work, worried about their neighborhoods, hostile to government, combining elements of racism with elements of class consciousness, contempt for the lower classes along with the distrust for the elite, and thus open to solutions from any direction, right or left. In the 20s, there was a similar estrangement in the middle classes, which w could have gone in various directions. The Ku Klux Klan had millions of members at that time. But in the 30s, the work of an organized left wing mobilized much of this feeling into trade unions, farmers unions, socialist movements. We may, in the coming years, be in a race for the mobilization of middle class discontent. The fact of that discontent is clear. The surveys since the early 70s show that 70 to 80% of Americans distrustful of government, business, and the military. This means the distrust goes beyond blacks, the poor, the radicals. It has spread among skilled workers, white-collar workers, professionals. For the first time in the nation's history, perhaps, both the lower classes and the middle classes, the prisoners and the guards, were disillusioned with the system. There are other signs. The rate of alcoholism, the high rate of divorce, from one of three marriages ending in divorce, the figure was climbing to one of two. Of drug use and abuse, of nervous breakdowns and mental illnesses. Millions of people have been looking desperately for solutions to their sense of impotency, their loneliness, their frustration, their estrangement from other people from the world, from their work, from themselves. They have been adopting new religions, joining self-help groups of all kinds. It is as if a whole nation were going through a critical point in its middle age, a life crisis of self-doubt, self-examination. All this at a time when the middle class is increasingly insecure economically. The system in its irrationality, has been driven by profit to build steel skyscrapers for insurance companies while the cities decay, to spend billions for weapons of destruction and virtually nothing for children's playgrounds, to give huge incomes to men who make dangerous or useless things and very little to artists, musicians, writers, and actors. Capitalism has always been a failure for the lower classes. It is now beginning to fail for the middle classes. The threat of unemployment always inside the, inside the homes of the poor has spread to white-collar workers and professionals. A college education is no longer a guarantee against joblessness, and a system that cannot offer a future to the young coming out of school is in deep trouble. If it happens only to the children of the poor, the problem is manageable. There are jails. If it happens to the children of the middle class, things may get out of hand. The poor are accustomed to being squeezed and always short of money, but in recent years the middle classes too have begun to feel the press of high prices, high taxes. In the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, there was a dramatic, frightening increase in the number of crimes. It was not hard to understand when one walked through any big city. There were contrasts of wealth and poverty, the culture of possession, the frantic as advertising. There was the fierce economic competition in which the legal violence of the state and the legal robbery by the corporations were accompanied by the illegal crimes of the poor. Most crimes by far involved theft. A disproportionate number of prisoners in American jails were poor and non-white, with little education. Half were unemployed the month prior to their arrest. The most common and most publicized crimes have been the violent crimes of the young, the poor, a virtual terrorization in the big cities, in which the desperate or drug-addicted attack and rob the middle class or even their fellow poor. A society so stratified by wealth and education lends itself naturally to envy and class anger. The critical question in our time is whether the, whether the middle classes so long led to believe that the solution for such crimes is more jails and more jail terms may begin to see by the sheer uncontrollability of crime that the only prospect is an endless cycle of crime and punishment. 
they might then conclude that physical security for a working person in the city can come only when everyone in the city is working, and that would require a transformation of national priorities, a change in the system. In recent decades, the fear of criminal assault has been joined by an even greater fear. Deaths from cancer begin to multiply, and the medical researchers seemed helpless to find the cause. It began to be evident that more and more of these deaths were coming from an environment poisoned by military experimentation and industrial greed. The water people drank, the air they breathed, the particles of dust from the buildings in which they worked had been quietly contaminated over the years by a system so frantic for growth and profit that the safety and health of human beings had been ignored. A new and deadly scourge appeared, the AIDS virus, which spread with special rapidity among homosexuals and drug addicts. Um, In the early 90s, the false socialism of the Soviet system had failed, and the American system seemed out of control. A runaway capitalism, a runaway technology, a runaway militarism, a runaway government of government, sorry, a running away of government from the people it claimed to represent. Crime was out of control, cancer and AIDS were out of control, prices and taxes and unemployment were out of control, the decay of cities and the breakdown of families were out of control, and the people seemed to sense all of this. Perhaps much of the general distrust of government reported in recent years comes from a growing recognition of the truth of what the U.S. Air Force bombardier Yossarian said in the novel Catch-22 to a friend who had just accused him of giving aid and comfort to the enemy. Quote, The enemy is anyone who's going to get you killed, no matter which side he's on. And don't you forget that, because the longer you remember that, is the longer that you might live. The next line in the novel is, quote, But Clevenger did forget, and now he is dead. Let us imagine the prospect for the first time in the nation's history of a population united for fundamental change. Would the elite turn, as so often before, to its ultimate weapon, foreign intervention, to unite the people with the establishment in war? It tried to do that in 1991 with the war against Iraq, but as June Jordan said, it was, quote, a hit the same way that crack is, and it doesn't last long, end quote. With the establishment's inability to either solve severe economic problems at home or to manufacture abroad a safety valve for domestic discontent, Americans might be ready to demand not just more tinkering, not more reform laws, another reshuffling of the same deck, another new deal, but radical change. Let us be utopian for a moment so that when we get realistic again, it is not that realism so often useful to the establishment in its discouragement of action, that realism anchored to a certain kind of history empty of surprise. Let us imagine what radical change would require of all of us. The society's levers of powers would have to be taken away from those whose drives have led to the present state, the giant corporations, the military, and their political collaborators. We would need, by a coordinated effort of local groups all over the country, to reconstruct the ec- economy for both efficiency and justice, producing in a cooperative way what people need most. We would start on our neighborhoods, our cities, our workplaces. Work of some kind would be needed by everyone. Um, Society could use the enormous energy now idle, the skills and talents now unused. Everyone could share the routine but the necessary jobs for a few hours a day and leave most of the time free for enjoyment, creativity, labors of love, and yet produce enough for an equal and ample distribution of goods. Certain basic things would be abundant enough to be taken out of the money system and be available, free, to everyone. Food, housing, health care, education, and transportation. 
The great problem would be to work out a way of accomplishing this without a centralized bureaucracy, using not the incentives of prison and punishment, but incentives of cooperation which spring from natural human desires, which in the past have been used by the state in times of war, but also by social movements that gave hints of how people might behave in different conditions. Decisions would be made by small groups of people in their workplaces, their neighborhoods, a network of cooperatives in communication with one another, a neighborly socialism avoiding the class hierarchies of capitalism and the harsh dictatorships that have taken the name socialist. People in time in friendly communities might create a new diversified nonviolent culture in which all forms of personal and group expression would be possible. Men and women, black and white, old and young, could then cherish their differences as positive attributes, not as reasons for domination. New valves of cooperations and freedom might then show up in the relations of people, the upbringing of children. To do all that in the complex conditions of control in the United States would require uh, combining the energy of all previous movements in American history, of labor insurgents, black rebels, Native Americans, women, young people, along with the new energy of an angry middle class. People would need to begin to transform their immediate environments, the workplace, the family, the school, the community, by a series of struggles against absentee authority, to give control to these places to the people who live and work there. These struggles would involve all the tactics used at various times in the past by people's movements, demonstrations, marches, civil disobedience, strikes and boycotts, and general strikes, direct action to redistribute wealth, to reconstruct institutions, to revamp relationships, creating in music, literature, drama, all the arts, and all the areas of work and play in everyday life, a new culture of sharing, of respect, a new joy in the collaboration of people to help themselves and one another. There would be many defeats, but when such a movement took hold in hundreds of thousands of places all over the country, it would be impossible to suppress, because the very guards of the system depends on to crush such a movement would be among the rebels. It would be a new kind of revolution, the only kind that could happen, I believe, in a country like the United States. It would take enormous energy, sacrifice, commitment, patience, but because it would be a process over time, starting without delay, there would be an immediate satisfaction that people have always found in the affectionate ties of groups striving together for a common goal. All this takes us all this takes us far from the American history into a realm of imagination, but not totally removed from history. There are at least glimpses in the past of such a possibility. In the 60s and 70s, for the first time, the establishment failed to produce national unity and patriotic fervor in a war. There was a flood of cultural changes such as the country had never seen. In sex, family, personal relations, exactly those situations most difficult to control from the ordinary centers of power. And never before was there such a general withdrawal of confidence from so many elements of the political and economic system. In every period of history, people have found ways to help one another, even in the midst of a culture of com- competition and violence, if only for brief periods to find joy in work, struggle, companionship, and nature. The prospect is for times of turmoil, struggle, but also inspiration. There is a chance that such a movement could succeed in doing what the system itself has never done, bring about great change with little violence. This is possible because the more of the 99% that begin to see themselves as sharing needs, the more the guards and the prisoners see their common interest, the more the establishment becomes isolated and ineffectual. The elite's weapons, money, control of information, would be useless in the face of a determined population. The servants of the system would refuse to work to continue the old deadly order and would be u- begin using their time, their space, the very things given them by the system to keep them quiet, to dismantle that system by creating a new one. 
The prisoners of the system will continue to rebel as before in ways that cannot be foreseen at times that cannot be predicted. The new fact of our era is the chance that they might be joined by the guards. We, readers and writers of books, have been, for the most part, among the guards. If we understand that and act on it, not only will life be more satisfying right off, but our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren might possibly see a different and marvelous world. So, if you don't, uh, let me explain why I wanted to record that, um, if you don't know. More now than ever, people are beginning to realize in America that things are not as they should be. Um, The majority of people who participate in uh, what then becomes the goods that lead towards these billion-dollar profits for people like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, all these folks, um, all the people who vote into office, the electives who continuously fail us, None of them have any power, none of us have any power in this society that we are the majority in, okay? It, in many cases all throughout the world, this has been true. But more than many societies that exist today, America has been able to quell that anger, been able to turn off that valve, Because there has been, as Howard Zinn refers to them, these guards, this middle class that has been kept well enough off sitting above the poor, uh, the poorest folks, the the lower class, um, and plays bodyguard between the ruling class and the working class. But more now than ever, that middle class is being thrown into the working class because guess what? As this system progresses, less and less people got the money to play, okay? And eventually, there's only going to be so few that we can turn around and look and say, hey, wait a minute, why don't we all go and, hmm, you know? Well, guess what, guys? That, And I don't, as, as Howard Zinn says, I don't want to make a prediction, Because that's stupid. But more now than ever, people are beginning to realize that shit needs to change. And we need to capitalize on that. If we want to do anything, if we want to make any change today, then we've got to capitalize on this. We have to take the moment in time which we exist in and work towards helping people. Quite honestly, that's the only way that we can expect any change to occur. We can't expect those in Washington to give us the change that we need, guess what? They've had two, three hundred years to do it. They haven't done it yet. So guess what? They can go get fucked. It's our time to say, no, y'all aren't going to give it to us. So let me go over here and get it for myself. And then as always happens, the state's going to go, oh, wait, no, wait a minute. We don't like it when you do that because that makes us look like we don't need to be here right now. Um, so you guys are going to need to stop. And just like they did with the Black Panther Party, they'll fucking kill you, all right? They'll make everybody think that you're some crazy lunatic. They'll convince the entire, you know, rest of the non-affected groups that you and your, you know, fellow uh, cohorts are the enemy. Well, now, just like the Black Panther Party, it doesn't matter what we build, Because we're going to be the enemy. We are not the enemy. Folks, what we need to do is help people become a part of the people, struggle with the people, and work towards building better for not only just America, because, I mean, we can get into it at another time. America, quote-unquote, is a ridiculous conception. Um, But not just in America, all over the world, people are struggling. And if we actually want to build a society that helps those people, we got to struggle with those people. We got to talk to those people. We got to work with those people. We got to figure out what their problems are and fix them. Otherwise, it doesn't matter what we do. There's always still going to be that lower class. We don't want that lower class. We want no class. We want the people. We want an equitable, free, and just society so that's why i wanted to include this this is going to be 
a hella long intro. So now I got to go back, edit the beginning of this, and you probably won't hear any of that. But yeah, so thanks for listening. That has been uh, chapter 23 from A People's History of the United States. If you want to check that out, it's by Howard Zinn. Great read. Definitely suggest it. Uh, But now... Uh, let's get into the actual podcast. Yay! See you guys in a minute. Bye! Hello, 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 and welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show about, uh, educating, about, I should say, uh, working towards and, uh, inevitably leading towards a, uh, true people's liberation movement, and hopefully one day... Uh, a proletarian internationalist movement. Um, But until then, uh, I am your host, Josh. Uh, Welcome back. To those of you who are tuning in for the first time, uh, I apologize ahead of time. Um, I am driving, so there is a chance that uh, you're going to have to, you know, hear some annoying background noise. Uh, Hopefully that's not too much of a pain in the ass for anybody. Um, but if it is, I get it. Uh, today, as per usual, we don't really have, uh, an objective in what we're talking about. I just kind of, I haven't done an episode in a while, so I wanted to get on here and record something and get it out. Um, because I've been reading a lot, I've been learning a lot, I've been, uh, networking, getting involved with a lot of folks who are organizing in the area, um, been working on kind of starting my own organization, um, with some other folks, uh, or I should say starting an organization with some other folks. It's certainly not my organization. Uh, it's called Leftist Unification Party. Um, if you want to check that out, uh, we have a Discord channel, we have a Facebook, an Instagram, a Twitter, a Tumblr. Um, so go ahead and check that out again. Leftist Unification Party. So I've been busy, um, but I wanted to get on here and kind of talk about what's been going on and what's been going on in my mind, what's been going on in the world, and kind of, you know, where to go from here. So it is February 4th, 2021, which is incredible. Um, I cannot believe that we're already a month into 2021. That seems insane. Uh, but anyways... It, uh, it seems to me that exactly what we expected was going to happen when Joe Biden became president is starting to happen. Um, we are starting to fall back into the Obama days, into uh, liberal governance, into non-offensive uh, governance, which hopefully, of course, in the eyes of the establishment will lead towards less and less eyes on the establishment. Um, They're hoping with a Joe Biden presidency to, you know, throw it back um, to the establishment to get uh, refocused, refounded as uh, the establishment party and try to reel back in a lot of the agitation, a lot of the frustration, a lot of the energy that... Trump helped to create. Well, here's the problem with that, folks. And I don't know if you're as maybe consciously aware of this as I am, um, but that's probably because literally all I do in my free time is pay attention to this stuff. Um, We certainly have it in our path to begin working towards, like, actual change. Um, I think that if Trump was good for anything, right, and I've said this probably the whole time he's been president, if Trump was good for anything, it was pissing people off, right? And although in the midst of pissing those people off, he also uh, encaged migrant families, he also, uh, him himself, his rhetoric, his actions, as well as the rest of his administrations, led directly to 300,000 deaths uh, of COVID-19. On top of that, the tax breaks that he gave to the wealthy, the, the executive orders that he passed, all of them, all of them 
went directly towards the same people that Joe Biden is going to be helping, right? But the difference is Donald Trump didn't know how to shut his mouth. Joe Biden does. Uh, He's great at it. He's been doing it since he passed uh, the 1996 crime bill. He surely hasn't talked about that since then. Uh, So it kind of scares me, right? Because, like, we had a lot of revolutionary fervor this time last... Well, I guess not this time, but last year due to the George Floyd protest, the Breonna Taylor uh, verdict, which coming up March 13th, it's been a year, and still to this day... No true justice has been served for either of those people, um, including the hundreds and thousands and millions of other folks who, just like them, were murdered in cold blood by our uh, State Department and our police. Um, But yeah, it's pretty upsetting because not for nothing, um, the only way that we're going to be able to affect any change is by amassing a, a movement that is dedicated towards not stopping until we get that change. You know, I'm reading A People's History of the United States, which if you haven't read it, folks, I think that it is a great read. If you don't enjoy reading, I get it. But if you do and you want to learn more, especially about this country and how it came to be, um, and I don't mean like the gross American history that A People's History by Howard Zinn is probably one of the best books that I have ever read. Um, And it is fantastic at showing precisely why absolutely nothing has gotten better in general for the average person in America since, uh, honestly, since the 1700s. I mean, we've been granted a lot of concessions. We uh, might live a higher quality... You know, the majority of us aren't starving and dying outside of the governor's house like they were in the 1600s and the 1700s that might that might be for sure but as it stands right now not many of us are doing much better than that it's just uh kind of the way that that surfaces itself the face that that takes is a little bit different now we're all just on welfare uh and unable to pay our bills um But yeah, so uh, it's been really upsetting to me because I can't really understand how so many people who were so angry six to eight months ago can just completely forget that anger, right? And I think that it's important that we have a discussion about this because there is a group of people in our society today that look like me, right? These revolutionary white kids who want to get involved and start shit and be a part of shit, right? There's there's two different kinds of us. There's those of us who want to be here because it makes us look good and it makes us feel good about ourselves. And then there's those of us who realize that we are here because, you know, white folks, privileged folks such as myself are here because we have a leg up in society that the majority don't. And so if we're to use that leg up for anything, you would want or you would hope that we would use that leg up for something good. And I think there is nothing that is more deserving uh, of the use of my privilege uh, than people's liberation. Um, There's millions of people in the United States today who are told on a daily basis that they are equal citizens, whether that's women, uh, people of color, indigenous folks, um, transgender folks, members of the LGBTQ plus community, it doesn't matter. There is a huge population within this country who lives a entirely second, third, fourth, fifth class citizen life while being told directly to your their face that no, this is America, the land of the free, we're all equal. You, look at the laws. You know, you the, the laws say that you, you can't kill black people for being black anymore, so they're equal. The laws say that women get to vote, so they're equal. Um, You know, all these ridiculous claims that because there's legislation or laws in place that are supposed to make our society equal, that it does. And it doesn't. It really doesn't, folks. 
And I think that it's ridiculous that anybody would ever make the claim that it does because all it takes is walking out into the real world for two seconds to recognize that this world is not an equal one, right? But let's let's talk about that a little bit. So in a history of the people or in a people's history of the United States, something that Howard Zinn does incredibly well is he is able to trace through problems that occur in society. So, you know, one might be in the early settlement period that uh, the governors of places like Georgia, uh, Virginia or not Georgia, the governors of places like Virginia or Pennsylvania were extremely rich beyond anyone's wildest dreams. And then the majority of people were starving, homeless, without work, yada, 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 right? So one example of how well Howardson traces problems to their end is this example right here. One would be Bacon's Rebellion. So if you don't know, there was a guy named Nathaniel Bacon in the Virginia colony who... um, started standing up to the Virginian governor and saying how it wasn't fair that him and the rest of the the landed aristocracy there was able to be the only ones who voted, be the only ones who were on, you know, the the boards of decision making. They were the only ones who were profiting off of that society. They were the only ones who were benefiting in any way shape or form. But what Bacon really wanted was his own version of becoming landed aristocracy, right? And so he used the fervor and the anger that the average people at that time were feeling about being, you know, uh, disproportionately poor, being disproportionately, um, you know, disproportionately suffering in society. Um, He took, Nathaniel Bacon took that and capitalized on it. And he said, oh, you guys want more freedom? You guys want justice. You guys want equality. Come with me, right? But as we know, if you look at the history of Bacon's Rebellion, he was more interested in going into the going west and killing Native Americans than he ever was in giving those colonists any kind of freedom or equality. An even bigger version of that very same thing would be the American Revolution. You know, you had this rich landed aristocracy. Um, the founding fathers, as we know them by, who were sick and tired of the British rule in the colonies. They wanted to be the new ruling class of the colonies. So what did they do? They recognized that so many people are suffering in society, and so many people are angry, and so many people are calling for change. Let's take that anger and let's capitalize on it. So they said, you guys want to be free? You want to be equal? Well, Britain is the one who's causing all of the inequality and all the lacks of freedom, not us. They said, you know, the the British people made us have slaves and the, the British crown made us take advantage of the poor and the British crown made us go west and kill the Native Americans. But the folks who were living here knew that that wasn't true. And that's why during the Revolutionary War, you had hundreds of thousands of mutinies, um, And that's true every single war we participate in. There's always mutinies. There's always conscientious objection. There's always a huge portion of the population that decides that the war that we are in has nothing to do with them, right? Why does this matter? Well, Howard Zinn is really good at tracing the problems that show up in society, how the establishment tries to say they're going to fix them, how those solutions do not actually help people and how then from that point the people get angry again. And every time the people get angry, there's different concessions, there's different reforms, there's different things that are done by the establishment that says, okay, we're sorry that didn't work, let's try this. But even getting that, so like an example of sorry that didn't work, let's try this, would be the civil rights movement of the 60s. You know, at the end of the 1800s, or I should say in the middle to the end of the 1800s, the Union and the United States government, the federal government, said, we are not going to allow slavery anymore. We're not. Unless you're a prisoner. But they expected somehow that, or they didn't, who knows, 
But based off of the fact that they passed the law, they expected to some extent that this was going to appease the people. Okay, you're not slaves anymore. What are you talking about? You need equality. You are equal. You're not a slave. Well, after, okay, the first slave was brought to America in 1619, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, which effectively did nothing, was passed in 1848. Um, I would say that probably true end of slavery came Reconstruction era 1890s when the true mass incarceration uh, pattern started to begin. Um, We broke away from chattel slavery and went right into prison slavery. Uh, But even still, I would say that around 1880s, 1890s is when chattel slavery uh, actually quote-unquote ended in the United States. Although there are recorded instances of chattel slavery, I think, all the way up until, like, the 80s or 90s of the 1900s, which is super cool. Um, but, yeah, so it's it's important to recognize kind of how this pattern uh, evolves and how, at every point in time, the establishment has enough wealth, the establishment has enough power to be able to to grant these little concessions every time, you know, emancipation proclamation and the end of slavery doesn't work. Okay. In the 1960s, we passed the civil rights act. That's 80 fucking years of resistance, 80 years of fighting, 80 years of protesting, 80 years of, uh, people of color, black folks, African-Americans being killed, lynched, uh, their families, homes burned, their possessions burned, run out of town, 80 years of that before we get a president, Lyndon B. Johnson, under immense pressure from all the civil rights groups within and also outside of the United States, passes a law that says, you know what? I think African Americans deserve to vote. And I think that they deserve to also not be treated like second-class citizens. But again, just like always, this wasn't an actual change. There was no actions that were taken to affect change in society other than simply passing legislation. Well, what's the problem with legislation in a country where they don't follow the law? Well, we just come up with loopholes. The same way that saying slavery is outlawed, but unless you're a prisoner, it's not. That's what we did with every other law that we've ever passed that has supposedly been intended to help people. Women's suffrage, African-American suffrage. Great, they can vote. That doesn't fucking change a damn thing for them. It doesn't change a damn thing, okay? The laws that Joe Biden just put into executive order, or sorry, excuse me, he directly was quoted as saying, I'm not making new laws, I'm ending bad policy. So the executive orders that Joe Biden signed into effect that don't pass new laws, but supposedly take away bad policy surrounding the immigration and uh, migrant children who are currently still in cages. Um, that that was the, the, the big change that him and his administration did. They're still in cages. Our immigration border patrol is still capturing people who are literally just seeking asylum, which is under U.S. and international law, completely legal, and we're still throwing them in prison for it. Excuse me. Throwing them in concentration camps for it, right? Well, Howard Zinn, in his book, is really great at showing the fact that uh, this isn't the first time we started doing this, right? Uh, Again, post-Civil War, we start imprisoning black people left and right for loitering, for trespassing, for supposedly stealing. We also made it so that black folks, if they wanted to work, they had to pay a certain pittance, right? They had to pay a certain tax to their employer in order to get them to sign a piece of paper that said they worked there in order to grant them land and voting rights, right? Well, here's the super cool thing about being a former slave. Um, You're not wealthy. So, Millions of African Americans went directly back into the same fields, directly back into the same situations they had been living in pre-Civil War, post-Civil War, because we passed laws that don't actually help them, okay? Howard Zinn, 
in this book, A People's History of the United States, is fantastic at showing each and every step throughout society, throughout American history, how we continuously do that, right? After um, 75,000 people demonstrate in 1991 against the Gulf War, what do we do in Iran and Iraq? We send drones. We send um, unmanned uh, bombing missions. We send uh, far less boots on the ground soldiers so that we can say, no, we care about the troops. We don't want them to die until, you know, we're not winning. Then we'll send hundreds of thousands more to die. But every time that the people speak up and say, this is not what we want, we are never given what we do want, okay? These protests, these insurrections, whatever you want to call them, that happen time and time again throughout American history, where people are calling for changes to society, where people are calling for changes to the lives that they live, they are never then turning around, they, the establishment, are never turning around and saying, okay, here's the mic, what is it that you do want? No. They're saying, oh, you guys don't like it when uh, we go to Vietnam and a couple hundred thousand kids die who didn't need to? Oh, next time we go to war in Korea, we just won't advertise it as much. We'll stop, we won't let them, you know, the, two, the news reporters go out and record. Okay, you don't like Korea? Well, in the Gulf War, um, we won't even fucking tell you what we're doing over there. We're going to tell you that we're going over there to help our ally Saudi Arabia. And we're going over there to help our ally Israel. Without giving you any context as to what's happening there, you now think that we are there defending democracy. Well, guess what, folks? That is not the case. You can look at the fact that I mean, not for nothing, the United States has been at war actively for over 220 of its 240 plus years of existence. More than 90% of American history, we have actively been involved in a conflict or a war, okay? Are any of us better for it? Are any of us living better lives because Vietnam happened? Are, Are any of us living better lives because we're currently bombing the shit out of Yemen and Sudan and Syria, and Palestine, and the Gaza Strip. Are any of us benefiting from this shit? Are any of us benefiting from the 830 military bases that the United States has all over the world? Are any of us benefiting from the $750 billion on average we spend on the military each and every year in this country? No! But again, is the establishment turning around and saying, oh, this isn't working for you guys. How can we help? No! And that's because, guys, it's very crucial that we understand this. American society is class society. Meaning, there's a group which is in control, and there's a group which is under control. Take a guess which one you are, right? What does that mean? Well, that means, in this society, it doesn't matter who the president is, it doesn't matter what whether the Democrats or the Republicans are in power. It doesn't matter what laws are passed. It doesn't matter what... I I guess it doesn't matter is a little bit of a, a broad statement. It doesn't matter as much as we're told it should. You know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, Democrat or Republican, Joe Biden or Donald Trump, Kamala Harris, Mike Pence, whoever, they... And I I can guarantee you this because they're sitting in the fucking seat. They are there because they got checks signed by the right people. They are there because they did back backdoor handshakes with the right folks, right? They're not there to help us. They're all a part of one group that says, hey, the way things are is good enough for us. It's making us money. It's keeping us in power. Let's keep it that way. Because if that weren't the case, guys, we wouldn't have presidents. We wouldn't have Congress people. We wouldn't have judges. We wouldn't have senators. We wouldn't have police officers. Because it's not helping anyone. It hasn't helped anyone. It won't help anyone. Because it's not addressing the problems which are creating the suffering that we are subject to. The system is creating that, that suffering. The police, the president, the vice president, the senators, the congresspeople, the judges, the laws, the legislation, all of that 
exists to uphold a system which allows every single year millions of people to die for simply not having the funds in order to survive, right? At the end of the day, capitalism goes like this. Ready? There are folks who, under capitalism, can eat tonight, and there are folks who, under capitalism, cannot. That is not because they do not have the resources to provide food for themselves. That is not because those resources do not exist to be provided to them. Nor do they not eat because the wealth does not exist to create the resources to then give to them. All of that exists, right? The wealth, the resources, the ability, the avenues to get the food to the people who need it. All of that is in existence. So why doesn't it happen? Well, there's only one way that could make quote-unquote sense considering everything else, and that's because it's not profitable, okay? You don't make money going into Detroit and giving homeless people homes. You don't make money going into food uh, pantries and just giving them food. You don't make money doing anything that is going to show that the system, which, again, is wholly based off of profits is not actually benefiting people. You don't make money doing that, so guess what? We're not going to do it. So here we are, 2021. Millions of Americans are out of a job. Millions Millions of Americans go every single year without medical insurance, without medical coverage, without medical assistance. Millions of Americans go without homes every single year. Millions of Americans and outside of America, you know, we constantly talk about these things as American problems. Well, how do you think that affects people outside of America who are not as rich as the median average American citizen? These problems not only affect Americans, but affect those affected by America, right? Something needs to change. We can't just put a new president in office. We can't just pass laws. We can't just get reforms, concessions. The whole system, capitalism, liberalism, America, needs to be completely broken down into non-existence and built back up from its foundation. Because guess what? It's not working. It's not working, folks. The majority, 70-80% of Americans today live paycheck to paycheck and cannot afford an emergency $400 bill that is unprecedented. That means one missed paycheck and you can't afford your bills. That means you're now homeless or that means you have to go on welfare or that means you are unable to put food on your children's plate, right? That's real life shit. That's not politics. That's not opinion. That's not, I don't like capitalism because I don't, I'm not rich. This shit does not work for billions of people. 3.3 billion people live underneath the poverty line of $5.10 a day. 3.3 billion people is almost 50% of the world's population. And that, again, as I've talked about before, has more to do with the inefficiency, well, inefficiency isn't the right word, but the uh, inaccuracy and inadequacy of how we measure poverty today. But even with those inaccurate and inadequate measurements, still almost 50% of the population of this country, of this world falls under that poverty line. That's incredibly awful. Something needs to change, okay? Um, here's what I'm advocating for. Organize. Build community. Start helping people. Um, yeah, I mean, that's really all we can do. We can't expect that this shit is going to happen tomorrow and everything's going to get better. We can't expect that we're going to be able to pass a law, get a person into office, do whatever, and all of a sudden tomorrow things are going to get better. Again, it took 80 years of hundreds of thousands of black people dying, hundreds of thousands of black people being murdered, okay, not just dying, but being murdered, hundreds of thousands of black people being thrown into prison, hundreds of thousands of black people living on the side of the street, dying of starvation, being uneducated, not given medical coverage, without shelter, all before we even passed a law that said, hey, these people should be allowed to vote too. And we thought that that was going to help them, and it didn't. Or somebody along the way thought it was going to help somebody, and it didn't. So now we have to move a step further, and we have to say, 
Look at the history of America. Look at all the changes. Look at all the actions. Look at all the protests, all the laws, the legislation that has changed. Look at all the different Congress people, uh, government officials that have been office, and look at how same it still is to 1619. Something needs to change. 